This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, or PTTI, from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Posterior tibial tendon insufficiency is the most common cause of adult-acquired flatfoot deformity caused by attenuation and tenosynovitis of the posterior tibial tendon, leading to medial arch collapse. Diagnosis can be made clinically with loss of the medial arch of the foot, which may progress to hindfoot valgus, forefoot abduction, and subsequent development of midfoot osteoarthritis. Treatment is non-operative with orthotics and ankle braces in early stages. A variety of surgical options are available and indicated for progressive and rigid deformities, subtalar or midfoot arthritis, and failure of non-operative management. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the demographics of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, this condition is more common in women and often presents in the sixth decade of life. Risk factors include obesity, hypertension, diabetes, increased age, corticosteroid use, and seronegative inflammatory disorders. Moving on to the etiology, as far as mechanism, the exact etiology is unknown. However, theories include acute injury, for example, ankle fractures caused by pronation and external rotation, versus long-standing tendon degeneration. The pathoanatomy can be broken down into early disease and late disease. Early disease includes early tenosynovitis, which progresses to posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, which leads to loss of the medial longitudinal arch dynamic stabilization. With respect to late disease, posterior tibial tendon insufficiency contributes to attritional failure of the static hindfoot stabilizers and collapse of the medial longitudinal arch. This includes the spring ligament complex, for example, the supramedial calcaneonavicular ligament, the plantar fascia, and plantar ligaments. Also know that fixed degenerative joint changes occur at late stages of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. The foot deformity seen in posterior tibial tendon insufficiency includes pes planus, hindfoot valgus, forefoot varus, and forefoot abduction. Associated conditions include inflammatory arthropathy and tarsal coalition, which can be seen in a young person with a rigid pes planus and or recurrent ankle sprains. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over muscles, tendons, blood supply, and biomechanics. So as far as muscles, the important one to know is the tibialis posterior, which originates from the posterior fibula, tibia, and interosseous membrane, and is innervated by the tibial nerve, which receives contributions from L4 and L5. As far as tendons, know that the posterior tibial tendon lies posterior to the medial malleolus before dividing into three limbs, the anterior limb, the middle limb, and the posterior limb. The anterior limb inserts onto the navicular tuberosity and first cuneiform. The middle limb inserts onto the second and third cuneiforms, cuboid, and metatarsals 2 through 4. Finally, the posterior limb inserts on the sustentaculum tali anteriorly. As far as the blood supply, know that branches of the posterior tibial artery supply the tendon distally. A watershed area of poor intrinsic blood supply exists between the navicular and distal medial malleolus, that is 2 to 6 centimeters proximal to the navicular insertion. As far as the biomechanics, the posterior tibial tendon lies in an axis posterior to the tibiotalar joint and medial to the axis of the subtalar joint. This functions as a primary dynamic support for the arch, acts as a hindfoot inverter, adducts and supinates the forefoot during the stance phase of gait, and acts as a secondary plantar flexor of the ankle. Know that the major antagonist to the posterior tibial tendon is the peroneus brevis. Finally, activation of the posterior tibial tendon allows locking of the transverse tarsal joints, creating a rigid lever arm for the toe-off phase of gait.
Moving on to the classification of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, this is divided into four stages. Stage one is characterized by tenosynovitis with no deformity. Physical exam will have a positive single heel raise and radiographs will be normal. Stage two can be subdivided into stage 2A and stage 2B. Stage 2A is characterized by a flat foot deformity, a flexible hind foot, and a normal forefoot. On physical exam, patients will not be able to do a single leg heel raise and will have mild sinus tarsi pain. Radiographs will have an arch collapse deformity. Stage 2B is characterized by a flat foot deformity, flexible hind foot, and forefoot abduction, which will manifest with a quote too many toes sign and greater than 40% talonavicular on coverage. On physical exam, patients will also not be able to do a single leg heel raise and will also have mild sinus tarsi pain. Radiographs, like in stage 2A, will also show arch collapse deformity. Stage 3 is characterized by a flat foot deformity, rigid forefoot abduction, and a rigid hind foot valgus. On physical exam, patients will also be unable to do a single leg heel raise and will have severe sinus tarsi pain. Radiographs will reveal arch collapse deformity and subtalar arthritis. Finally, stage 4 is characterized by flat foot deformity, rigid forefoot abduction, rigid hind foot valgus, and deltoid ligament compromise. On physical exam, these patients will not be able to do a single leg heel raise, will have severe sinus tarsi pain, as well as ankle pain. Radiographs will reveal arch collapse deformity, subtalar arthritis, as well as tailor tilt in the ankle mortis. Moving on to presentation of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, symptoms include medial ankle slash foot pain and weakness, which is seen early. There will also be progressive loss of arch, and there will be lateral ankle pain due to subfibular impingement, which is a late symptom. On physical exam, with respect to inspection and palpation, patients may be found to have pes planus, which will manifest with collapse of the medial longitudinal arch. You may also find a hind foot valgus deformity, which is flexible in stage 2 and rigid in stages 3 and 4. You may also find forefoot abduction, which is seen in stage 2B disease, which will manifest with a quote too many toes sign, and there will be greater than 40% talonavicular on coverage. On inspection in these patients, you may also find forefoot varus, and to do this, you will place a flexible heel in neutral position, and then observe the relationship of the metatarsal heads. Flexible is when the metatarsal heads are perpendicular to the long axis of the tibia and calcaneus, while a fixed forefoot varus is when the lateral border of the foot is more plantar flex than the medial border. Finally, on palpation, you may find there is tenderness just posterior to the tip of the medial malleolus, which is often associated with an equinus contracture. As far as range of motion assessment, you should have the patients do a single limb heel rise and know that patients will be unable to perform this in stages 2, 3, and 4. You should also assess posterior tibial tendon power, where the foot should be positioned in plantar and full inversion. Patients will be unable to maintain foot position when the examiner applies eversion force. Finally, you should determine whether the deformity is flexible or fixed. Flexible deformities are passively correctable to a plantigrade foot in stage 2, while rigid deformities are not correctable in stages 3 and 4. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a weight-bearing AP and lateral of the foot, as well as an ankle mortise. As far as findings, on AP of the foot, you may find increased talonavicular on coverage, as well as an increased talo-first metatarsal angle, otherwise known as the Simmon angle, which is seen in stages 2 through 4. On the weight-bearing lateral of the foot, you may see an increased talo-first metatarsal angle, otherwise known as Murie's angle. Know that angles of greater than 4 degrees indicates pes planus, and this is seen in stages 2 through 4. 
a weight-bearing lateral of the foot may also reveal a decreased calcaneal pitch, and know that the normal angle is between 17 to 32 degrees. A decreased calcaneal pitch indicates a loss of arch height. A weight-bearing lateral of the foot may also reveal a decreased medial cuneiform floor height, which indicates loss of arch height. Finally, a weight-bearing lateral of the foot may also reveal subtalar arthritis, which is seen in stages 3 and 4. Finally, as far as findings on the ankle mortise, you may find tailored tilt due to deltoid insufficiency, which is seen in stage 4. Moving on to MRI, findings include variable amounts of tendon degeneration and arthritic changes in the talonavicular, subtalar, and tibiotalar joints. Finally, with respect to ultrasound, there is an increasing role in the evaluation of pathology within the posterior tibial tendon. As far as the differential diagnosis for posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, the one to know is pes planus secondary to midfoot pathology, such as osteoarthritis or a chronic Lisfranc injury, or incompetence of the spring ligament, that is the primary static stabilizer of the talonavicular joint in the absence of posterior tibial tendon pathology. So with respect to midfoot pathology, that is osteoarthritis or chronic Lisfranc injury, treat these patients with a midfoot fusion and a realignment procedure. In terms of incompetence of the spring ligament, that is a primary static stabilizer of the talonavicular joint in the absence of posterior tibial tendon pathology, treat these patients with adjunctive spring ligament reconstruction in addition to a standard flat foot reconstruction. Moving on to treatment of posterior tibial tendon insufficiency, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes an ankle foot orthosis, immobilization in a walking cast slash boot for three to four months, or custom molded in shoe orthosis. So an ankle foot orthosis is indicated in the initial treatment for stage 2, 3, and 4 disease. It's also indicated for patients who are not operative candidates, as well as sedentary slash low demand patients that are aged greater than 60 to 70. As far as the technique of non-operative management, know that the AFO family of braces includes an Arizona brace, a molded brace, and an articulating brace. An AFO or an ankle foot orthosis is found to be the most effective. Remember, you want a medial orthotic post to support valgus collapse, and know that an Arizona brace is a molded leather gauntlet that provides stability to the tibiotalar joint, hind foot, and longitudinal arch. As far as immobilization in a walking cast slash boot for three to four months, this is indicated as the first line of treatment in stage one disease. As far as a custom molded in shoe orthosis, this is indicated in stage one patients after a period of immobilization, as well as stage two patients. The technique will involve a medial heel lift and longitudinal arch support. Note that a medial forefoot post is indicated if there is a fixed forefoot varus that is present. An example of an orthosis used in this setting is a UCBL with a medial posting. Operative options include tenosynovectomy, which is indicated in stage 1 disease if immobilization fails. Another operative option is an FTL transfer, calcaneal osteotomy, tendo Achilles lengthening, plus or minus forefoot correction osteotomy, plus or minus spring ligament repair, plus or minus lateral column lengthening, plus or minus medial column arthrodesis, plus or minus posterior tibial tendon debridement. Indications include stage 2 disease, lateral column lengthening for talonavicular uncoverage, and medial column arthrodesis if the deformity is at the naviculocuneiform joint. Contraindications include hypermobility, neuromuscular conditions, severe subtalar arthritis, obesity, which is a relative contraindication, and age greater than 60 to 70, which is also a relative contraindication. 
Another operative option is a first tarsometatarsal joint arthrodesis, calcaneal osteotomy, tendo-Achilles lengthening, plus or minus lateral column lengthening, plus or minus posterior tibial tendon debridement, which is indicated for stage 2 disease with a first tarsometatarsal hypermobility, instability, or arthritis. An isolated subtalar arthrodesis is indicated in the absence of a fixed forefoot deformity. Contraindications include fixed forefoot supination slash varus deformities, as otherwise this will overload the lateral border of the foot. Other contraindications include joint hypermobility. A hindfoot arthrodesis is indicated in the setting of stage 3 disease. Know that this will typically be a triple arthrodesis. It's also indicated for stage 2 disease with severe subtalar arthritis, and know that a subtalar and talonavicular arthrodesis can be considered. Another option is a triple arthrodesis and tendo-Achilles lengthening plus deltoid ligament reconstruction, which is indicated in stage 4 disease with a passively correctable ankle valgus. Finally, a tibio-talocalcaneal arthrodesis is indicated in the setting of stage 4 disease with a rigid hindfoot, valgus angulation of the talus, and tibiotalar as well as subtalar arthritis. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with an FDL transfer, as far as indications, the FDL is synergistic with the tibialis posterior, and therefore transfer can augment the function of a deficient posterior tibialis. This is indicated in the setting of stage 2 disease. Relative contraindications of an FDL transfer include rigidity of the subtalar joint, which is defined as less than 15 degrees of motion. Another relative contraindication is a fixed forefoot varus deformity, which is defined as greater than 10 to 12 degrees. As far as the technique for an FDL transfer, first you will find the FDL and the FHL at the knot of Henry, and then insert the FDL into the navicular, near the insertion of the posterior tibialis. Another alternative to an FDL transfer is an FHL transfer, which is more complicated to mobilize and has not shown improved results. Know that in the midfoot, the FHL runs under the FDL. Moving on to a calcaneal osteotomy, this is indicated to correct hindfoot valgus. Techniques include medial displacement calcaneal osteotomy, or an MDCO, and an Evans lateral column lengthening osteotomy. A medial displacement calcaneal osteotomy, or MDCO, is used in stage 2A, which manifests with insignificant forefoot abduction. An Evans lateral column lengthening osteotomy is used in stage 2B, which will have significant forefoot abduction. This may require additional medial displacement calcaneal osteotomy to correct the deformity. Note that overlengthening may be corrected by a first tarsometatarsal fusion or medial cuneiform osteotomy. Moving on to tendo-Achilles lengthening or gastrocnemius recession, this is indicated for equinus contracture. Moving on to forefoot correction osteotomy, this is indicated for fixed forefoot supination slash varus, or a stage 2C. The techniques include a plantar flexion or dorsal opening wedge medial cuneiform or cotton osteotomy. This is used with a stable medial column, that is, the navicular is collinear with the first metatarsal. This corrects the residual forefoot varus after hindfoot correction is made surgically. Another potential technique is a medial column fusion, that is, an isolated first tarsometatarsal fusion, isolated navicular fusion, or combined tarsometatarsal and navicular fusions. This is used with an unstable medial column, that is, a plantar sag at the first tarsometatarsal and or cuneiform joints. A spring ligament repair is indicated with a spring ligament rupture in some cases. Posterior tibial tendon debridement may also be required. Finally, a triple arthrodesis includes calcaneocuboid, talonavicular, and subtalar joints. Additional medial column stabilization may be required in this setting. 
Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 56-year-old woman comes to your office with foot pain after a nine-month trial of orthotics. Your examination reveals the hind foot is in valgus, the arch is depressed, and the forefoot is abducted when the foot is viewed posteriorly. She is unable to perform a single heel rise on the affected side. The hind foot is flexible and there is an equinus contracture. What combination of surgical interventions is most appropriate? And the choices are 1. Tenosynovectomy followed by UCBL orthotic use. 2. Dwyer closing wedge calcaneal osteotomy, first metatarsal closing wedge osteotomy, and plantar fascia release. 3. Medial calcaneal displacement osteotomy, lateral column lengthening, FDL tendon transfer, and tendo-Achilles lengthening. 4. Arthrodesis of the subtalar, talonavicular, and calcaneal cuboid. And 5. Lateral calcaneal displacement osteotomy, FDL tendon transfer, and tendo-Achilles lengthening. The correct answer to this question is 3. Medial calcaneal displacement osteotomy, lateral column lengthening, FDL tendon transfer, and tendo-Achilles lengthening. So this patient presents with a stage 2b acquired flat foot deformity. The review articles by Meyerson and Pinney discuss the classification and management of adult acquired flat foot deformity. Stage 1 presents with medial ankle pain due to posterior tibial tendon synovitis. Stage 2 presents with a hind foot in valgus and inability to perform a single limb heel rise. Stage 2a has a normal forefoot whereas stage 2b has an abducted forefoot exposing too many toes when the foot is viewed posteriorly. Stage 3 occurs over time as the hind foot becomes rigid in a valgus position, and stage 4 develops as the deltoid ligament becomes incompetent and the talus tilts into valgus. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, tenosynovectomy followed by UCBL orthotic use is incorrect, as tenosynovectomy can be used in stage 1 disease that fails conservative management. Answer 2, Dwyer closing wedge calcaneal osteotomy, first metatarsal closing wedge osteotomy, and plantar fascia release is incorrect, as this is used as treatment for cavovirus feet. Answer 4, arthrodesis of the subtalar, talonavicular, and calcaneal cuboid joint is incorrect, as this option is a treatment option for stage 3 disease. Finally, answer 5, lateral calcaneal displacement osteotomy, FTL tendon transfer, and tendo-Achilles lengthening is incorrect, as this is not an option, as a lateral displacement calcaneal osteotomy would exacerbate the patient's hind foot valgus. Moving on to the next question. What is the preferred surgical treatment for painful acquired flat foot deformity with stage 3 posterior tibial tendon insufficiency? And the choices are 1. FDL transfer to the navicular, medial displacement calcaneal osteotomy, and tendo-Achilles lengthening. 2. Pantalar arthrodesis. 3. FDL transfer to the navicular with lateral column lengthening through the anterior calcaneus. 4. Posterior tibial tendon debridement and tenodesis to the FDL. And 5. Arthrodesis of the calcaneocuboid, talonavicular, and subtalar joints. The correct answer to this question is 5. Arthrodesis of the calcaneocuboid, talonavicular, and subtalar joints. So stage 3 posterior tendon insufficiency is characterized by a fixed rather than flexible deformity with associated subtalar and midfoot arthritis, which warrants triple arthrodesis, that is fusion of the calcaneocuboid, talonavicular, and subtalar joints. A flexible deformity, that is stage 2, may be surgically treated with calcaneal osteotomy, FDL transfer, and lateral column lengthening. 
In stage 4, the talotibial ankle joint is also arthritic or there is tailor tilt, and a pantalar fusion is warranted. Moving on to the final question. An obese 65-year-old woman has a chronic painful flat foot with a rigid valgus hindfoot deformity. Radiographs reveal subtalar joint degenerative changes, but no signs of ankle joint degenerative changes or abnormal tailor tilt. She is unable to single leg heel raise and has a quote too many toes sign. What stage of posterior tibial tendon dysfunction is she best classified as? And the choices are 1, 5, 2, 4, 3, 3, 4, 2, and 5, 1. The correct answer to this question is 3, 3. So acquired pes planus deformity in adults is most often caused by posterior tibial tendon or PTT insufficiency. Classic cases occur in overweight and middle-aged patients. Physical exam findings include a too-many-toe sign. In the article by Pinney, four stages of the pathology are listed as stage 1 being tenosynovitis of the posterior tibial tendon and maintenance of the ability to perform a single bike heel raise. Stage 2 is a flexible valgus hindfoot deformity and unable to perform a single leg toe raise. Stage 3 is a fixed valgus hindfoot deformity. And stage 4 is stage 3 that changes with the addition of ankle degenerative changes and possible deltoid ligament complex insufficiency. That's all for this review about posterior tibial tendon insufficiency. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.